we will spend some time together meditating on God's word to start the new year. So not only do I get to say good morning, which is unusual for us since we meet normally at three in the afternoon, but I also get to say happy new year. What a joy, what a pleasure to be able to worship together as the first thing we do in 2023. I don't know if you are anything like me, but for, for years now, I've noticed in my own soul as I approach the New Year's celebration, uh, something of a, a, a tension that appears, a tension between the celebration of Christmas, which seems to be all about fun, excitement, we're celebrating the incarnation, we're opening gifts, we're eating cookies, we're eating far too many calories, and then it, it, far too short. You know, Christmas was only a week ago, folks, but it's far too short to just sit there and enjoy that moment, and all of a sudden, January 1st, get on a diet, exercise five times a week, fix everything that was broken about me from last year, and it just seems like uh, an abrupt shift, like, like I can't shift gears that fast. Uh, and I think sometimes there's actually, there's a, there's a subtle temptation under the hood, if we're honest with ourselves, to accidentally pack up the gospel when we're packing up our Christmas decorations. To say, okay, we've been celebrating Jesus, but now there's a lot of work to do, and so I've got to roll up my sleeves, and I've just got to get back to the work in my own strength, do it my own way. I've just got to make this new year work for me. And we put, we put Jesus and the gospel away when we put those boxes back in the attic. And January 1st hits, and we forget that Christ has something to say to us the same on the first week of January as he does on December 25th. And so that, that's something that I think our text this morning speaks to. How, how do we bridge the gap between the celebration of the incarnation on the one hand and our New Year's resolutions and our hopes and dreams and goals and plans? Or to put it more specifically, how do we bring the gospel to bear on our plans? See, January 1st, it's a time for new plans. It's a time for thinking about things you'd like to change from last year. What does what does the gospel have to say to us in this moment? Our text for this morning tells the story of the birth of Isaac. And I believe that God has something to teach us about ourselves and something to teach us about him that's particularly relevant for us as we enter a new year. You see, Isaac and his mother Sarah are a living example for us that will help us get our minds and our hearts ready for 2023. So let's turn our attention together to God's word. Now, before we start reading, uh, Isaac's birth story is spread out over about seven chapters of the book of Genesis. So buckle up. I think I can get you out of here by maybe two o'clock this afternoon. It's going to be fabulous. Kids, you're going to love it. No, no. We're going to drop in uh, to three moments in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 17, chapter 18, and chapter 21. And these are key moments, moments when the Lord is speaking particularly about the birth of Isaac. So please, 
turn to Genesis chapter 17, and we're going to start reading in verse 15. That's Genesis 17, 15. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Now, turn the page to Genesis chapter 18 and starting in verse 9. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out, and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. And finally, turn over to chapter 21, the first seven verses. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Pray with me. Oh, Father, we come into this new year like we come into every year, needing your help, needing your grace. And that's the same way that we come to this sermon and to this service this morning. Would you please, Lord, send the Holy Spirit to cause your word to come alive in our hearts in a way that it has never done before. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Have you ever heard of a slap bracelet? Ra raise your hand. Slap bracelets, is that that's still a thing? In 2023, people still know about 
slap bracelets? Okay, so you may have heard of them, but you don't really, I, I would be willing to say, you do not really know slap bracelets unless you were in fourth grade in the year 1990, like I was. Uh, now, I've done some research on this, and it so happens that 1990 was like the high watermark of the slap bracelet craze in our country. And, and if craze sounds a little bit strong, then that just tells me that you were not in elementary school when this was happening, because the slap bracelet wave broke over the elementary schools of our country like a tsunami. And if you didn't have slap bracelets, then you were not anyone in fourth grade. You needed slap bracelets, and I loved slap bracelets. Now, this sounds really ironic to me, coming out of my mouth as an adult man, that, that these bracelets became incredibly important to me, but they did. They came in every design, lots of different colors, patterns, leopard print. You could do whatever you wanted with these things. And in fourth grade, a company created a watch, a digital watch face that would snap on to a slap bracelet. This was the best accessory in the history of accessories. Now, you could change your watch band every day. And fourth grade Tim burned with desire for one of these watches. And it just so happens that one of my classmates who sat a couple desks over had one, and he kept it in his desk. And this desire led me to make one of the worst decisions of my young life. Uh, one day, when my classmate had stepped away from his desk, I stole that watch right out of his desk. And my teacher, Mrs. Windish, was no dummy, and she knew what had happened. Everybody could see he no longer has the watch. All of a sudden, I have the watch. There was no mystery about this crime. But she was kind. She was concerned about my heart. She didn't want to just come down in a heavy-handed way, and so she called me out into the hallway. And if you've ever been in the hallway of an elementary school in this kind of situation, you know what I'm talking about. She calls me out into the hallway, and she says, Tim, did you take his watch? But in that moment, I lied. I doubled down. I had already stolen from one of my friends, and now I'm lying to cover my tracks. I said, no, I didn't. Oh, and Mrs. Windish, I think by God's grace, she knew exactly how to deal with this situation. She could tell that I was in turmoil. And right when that lie left my lips, I wished I could have clawed it back. I, I had such shame. And she said, I'm going to let you think about it here in the hallway for a minute. And I'm going to go back into the classroom. And I'll come check on you again in five minutes. Uh, now, those five minutes were the, the worst five minutes of my young life. I was, I was really, I know it sounds funny uh, because it was such a small thing to steal, but it was still theft. And then I still lied about it. I had offended God and hurt my classroom friend. And as I was sitting there in those five minutes, I was so scared. I was filled with shame. I, I wish I had never told the lie. I wish I had never stolen, and I knew what I had to do. I, I, had to, I had to tell the truth and come clean, and by God's grace, I did. But friends, it's these uncomfortable moments, these moments where you're fully in tune with the way that you've broken God's law, where you're, where you're rightfully guilty, and, and you feel it, and you feel that shame. These moments are the moments that God often uses to teach us the, the biggest lessons about His grace 
and forgiveness, are they not? Uh, that's when, only when we acutely feel the, the horror, the pain, uh, the wrongness of our sinful actions, can we really appreciate God's grace. And in our text this morning, Sarah is going to find herself in a similar situation. Sarah is going to make some really, really bad decisions. And then she's going to get caught in a lie. But God's going to use that as an example for all of us to show the depth of love and grace in his heart. I'd like to draw your attention to three main points this morning. Uh, Point number one is God's promise. Point number two is Sarah's pain. And finally, point three is God's remarkable grace. So let's jump right into point number one. Now look, look again with me at Genesis 17, just at verses 15 and 16. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Now, we need to orient ourselves to this text. This is the third time that God has made this promise to Abraham. So the first time is in Genesis chapter 12. Then he comes again in Genesis chapter 15 and reiterates the promise. And here we are in Genesis 17, and he's saying it again. So there's been some buildup here with this promise. He's come three times before he fulfills it. And he's, he's meant to show it. This is meant to show us and Abraham and Sarah that this is a significant moment in biblical history. And not only that, the, the delay between Genesis 12 and Genesis 17 is going to become a key feature in Abraham and Sarah's life and also a, a painful feature for Sarah in particular as she waits for years between the promises. Is it going to happen? So we need to go back to Genesis chapter 12 because when God steps in and starts speaking to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, we are in a dark moment in world history. So in the garden, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, Adam and Eve sin, humanity falls, and then sin spirals humanity into a really horrible place very quickly. So the first two people ever born on this earth, Cain and Abel, one of them kills the other, murders him out of jealousy. Cain does that. And then very quickly, that's in Genesis chapter 3. Three chapters later, all of humanity has become so wicked that God has to bring a flood to start fresh, okay? And the flood does not solve our problem with sin, as God knew that it wouldn't. So the flood comes in Genesis chapter 6, but by Genesis chapter 11, we're back to the Tower of Babel. So raise your hand if you want to live in this period of world history. Murder, the flood, the Tower of Babel. So nobody's volunteering. When, when you ask that question at cocktail parties, nobody says, yeah, the period of history I'd like to live in is, you know, Genesis chapter 10. No, nobody's picking that, okay? It's because it's an incredibly dark moment in world history. So when God steps in and starts talking to Abraham, all of our ears should perk up in Genesis chapter 12. This is, this is a remarkable moment in biblical history. So look with me, Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. We need, we need to understand What is God saying? What is he promising to Abraham and Sarah? Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, 
and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. In you, Abraham. So do you see yourself in the text? If you're sitting here in Christ this morning, it, it's because it traces back to God's dedication to this promise. God stepped in to a situation in world history where mankind's relationship with God was hopelessly broken. It did not look like there was anything we could do. In fact, there was nothing mankind could do to repair the situation. And he said, in you, Abraham, all the families on earth will be blessed. This promise comes like water in the desert. It's, it's a first glimpse of hope in the biblical timeline. And the promise reaches even to us here in this room today, no matter what family we come from, what nation, what ethnicity, what your background is, socioeconomic status, every family on earth. Now our ears should be tingling here. We should hear echoes of what God said to Adam and Eve in the garden just immediately after the fall. He told Adam and Eve something that sounded a little bit like what he's telling to Abraham and Sarah. He, he said to Eve, Right in that moment, right after the fall, Eve, one of your children will crush the head of the serpent. And now what we're learning in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, is that we know the one who will defeat the serpent is going to come from Abraham's family. But there is a heartbreaking flaw in the plan. You see, the whole plan is based on Abraham and Sarah having children. They have to have children. If, if the one who's going to crush the serpent is going to come from their family, then there have to be kids running around. But Sarah can't have kids. She's infertile. And by now, in our text, in chapter 17, Sarah is 90 years old. So e even if she didn't struggle with infertility, her ability to have children is long past. And this brings us to our second point. Sarah's pain. Now, Sarah's role in Isaac's birth story is significant, and, and I, know, <laughs> I know that sounds like a massive understatement to say that the mom's role in a birth story is significant, but, but the, the text pays particular attention to Sarah in this story, perhaps even more so than it pays to Abraham as you read through Genesis 12 to 21. And the New Testament comes in and tells us that this is intentional, that God wants us to learn something from Sarah in particular. So we need to review, what do we know about Sarah? Well, by Genesis 17 and 18, Sarah has had an incredibly difficult 25 years. Okay, she, she hasn't had a difficult month. She hasn't had a difficult year, decade. She has had a quarter of a century has been incredibly difficult for her. 25 years before Genesis chapter 17, God tells her husband to move away from his and his wife's hometown, okay? Now, this is hard in and of itself, but she's in faith for it, and she follows him away. And you know what happens? They never settle down. 
The Bible makes it clear Abraham and Sarah are known as sojourners for the rest of their lives. They never own land again until when? Until Sarah dies and Abraham purchases her burial ground. Okay, so this woman, 25 years ago, she, she left her hometown, her family. She never came back there, and she spent that, the next quarter century living in tents. Now, Hebrews tells us that this was evidence of her faith, but if you've, if you've ever done anything that is true evidence of your faith, you'll know that that doesn't mean that it was easy. You know, I can picture Sarah, you know, maybe 17 years in to her sojourning, saying, okay, Abraham, you know, I get it. I get it. We're following God. We're looking for a city whose architect and builder is God. You know, we're not going to make an idol of this world, but do you think we could have a house? I'm tired of the tent. You know, I promise I won't make it an idol. I just want to, you know, have four walls that, that don't have to be staked into the ground first. Okay, so first off, Sarah's been a sojourner for 25 years. Secondly, these travels have not been safe. They weren't on vacation. They weren't living in an Airbnb, okay? Sarah was abducted by powerful men twice, okay? First, by Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and then by Abimelech, the king of Gerar, okay? To make matters worse, it was her husband's fault that she was abducted. Men, this is not an example for us, okay? Abraham, apparently Sarah was a very beautiful woman, and Abraham thought, if the men of the land, the wicked men of the land, know that you are my wife, they will kill me so that they can have you. So Abraham calculated and said, well, I'd like to save my own neck. Sorry, dear. And so they go into the land and tell this lie. Oh, will you just say that you're my sister? And she does, and the predictable happens. These men violently take her into their harem. Now, God protected her from violent harm in both of those situations. But put yourself in Sarah's shoes when Pharaoh's men come and march you away. Okay, what is about to happen to your life? Realistically, what is about to happen to Sarah in that moment? Okay, this has not been a bed of roses for her. And then it happens again with Abimelech. I don't want to be sitting around the dinner table when the Lord restores Sarah to Abraham's tent and they're sitting around dinner that night. And he's like, well, welcome back, honey. No, no. How does she forgive him for this? Okay, this is not a blissful family environment. And finally, Sarah has struggled with infertility. Now, this can cause intense sorrow for any woman. But for a woman in the ancient Near East, infertility introduced another layer of difficulty because it also exposes that woman to economic and physical danger. So what happens to a woman in the ancient Near East if her husband dies and there's no other men? She doesn't have any sons to protect her. Okay, what happens to that woman is she, she is immediately thrown on the mercy of the surrounding society. She is immediately destitute. She has no recourse. She is in a hopeless situation. Okay, so we already know what the other men of the land are like. We already know what they want Sarah for. So if Abraham dies and she has no kids, this woman is in trouble. So her inf infertility was, was a big problem for her. And finally, for Sarah, perhaps unique among women, there is a spiritual dimension to her infertility. Think what they have done. They left their homeland based on a promise God made, a promise that was dependent on children. Okay? 
Is this causing Sarah? And Sarah can't have children. How is this operating? How is this weight on her shoulders operating in their marriage? Does she feel inadequate? Does she feel guilty? Is she looking at her husband Abraham saying, I know God made this promise to you and I want this to happen, but I just can't. It's out of my hands. So there's this spiritual dimension to her infertility. And so eventually, Sarah made a desperate, a desperate decision. Look at Genesis chapter 16, verses 1 to 4. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go in to my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Wives in the room, how desperate would you have to be to recommend that your husband take another wife? What how was Sarah's desire to have a child operating in her? What, what effect was it having on her year after year, moving around in tents, 25 years of this, no children, no children, no children? What proportion must that have taken in her heart and in her life for her to take this step, for her to say, Abram, I have a servant. Take her as your wife. Verse 2 gives us a clue to what she was thinking. She says, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. Oh, folks, this is, this is a terrible plan. When we're reading it in the safety of our own living room, we all know, we can all see it. Sarah, it, it's not going to work that way. It's not going to work out how you think. Hagar's child is not going to replace your desire for a child. But you know what? Doesn't sin always work this way? When a desire becomes an idol in our heart, doesn't it always blind us to the truth? Doesn't it make us want to try anything to get what we want in that moment, no matter how unwise the plan might be? You see, Sarah's infertility represented an obstacle that she couldn't beat, so she decided to manipulate God's plan a little bit. But folks, don't miss this. Like every time we try to accomplish God's plan in our own strength, this plan backfired in a major way on Sarah and Abraham and Hagar. Look at verse 4, 16 verse 4. And he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Oh, like anyone but Sarah could have foreseen, this completely wrecked her family, okay? This wasn't an adoption story. This isn't a story of a surrogate mother. Hagar became Abram's wife, and now there's a baby and a new wife in the household, and Sarah has to live with the consequences of this, this decision every day, okay? By the time we get to chapter 18, Ishmael is 13 years old, 
let that sink in, okay? Sarah didn't make a mistake and say, hey, why don't you marry Hagar? And then that mistake went away and everybody was able to forget about it. No, the mistake grew up. The mistake was 13 years old, has been running around the house. Every day, Sarah is reminded again and again and again of a decision that introduced enormous friction into the house. Think of the jealousy between the two women, okay? Hagar, do you think Hagar has the same disposition towards Sarah as she did before? No. Hagar looks with contempt on her. Oh, my mistress, she's been trying to get pregnant for 25 years and nothing, but, you know, God blessed me, though. Okay, this introduced enormous friction. This is, this is an extremely unhappy family. This is a broken home. So now that we know the context, we need to look again at chapter 18. Chapter 18, verses 9 through 15. They said to him, so this is only a few weeks, maybe a month or two, after the conversation God had with Abraham in chapter 17. And the reason we know that is because the Lord is going to repeat his, his promise about a baby being born about this time next year. So the Lord visited this family twice in a very short space of time. And this is what he said. They said to him, where is Sarah your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah your wife shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out, my Lord is old. Shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? And say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you. About this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I didn't laugh for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. I just want you to notice two things here in this passage. There's so much here, we only have time for two things. One, I I want you to notice Sarah. Sarah, she's 90 years old in, in this chapter. She's older than my grandmother, and she's hiding behind the door of the tent. She's hiding She can't bear to come out and speak to the Lord face to face. This 90-year-old woman is hiding, and she is full of guilt, of shame, of unmet desire, of hopes dashed. Sarah is 90, folks. Her life is ending. She She has every reason to believe that everything she wanted in this life is ending in failure. Her desire to have kids. Her desire to have a home. This is... This is Sarah hiding behind the door of the tent. And now the Lord comes and he says, Abraham, where's your wife Sarah? I'm going to give her a baby. And Sarah cannot receive it. She cannot. The promise, she cannot. She, she wants to plug her ears. It's too painful. You've been promising me this for 25 years, Lord. And what's more, I've made a mess of everything now. Now there's Hagar, who's my husband's second wife. Now there's Ishmael. The promise cannot possibly still be for me. Leave leave me alone, Lord. Take your promise elsewhere. And so she laughs. She laughs. 
many of us know all too well what kind of a laugh this was. Our family uses Ann Voskamp's Advent devotional each Christmas, and I think she gets it right when she describes the scene this way. Voskamp writes, Abraham, God said, everything is always more than it seems, more than you can see. I am doing unexpected things. I am sending you a child, and through that child your family will grow big and the whole earth will be blessed. Abraham laughed happy, and when news of the miracle child reached the ears of his wife, Sarah, she laughed too. But Sarah laughed sad. Sarah laughed the way you do when you think someone's teasing you. And you laugh brave so you don't cry hard. Sometimes you use laughter like a shield to protect your heart. Could Sarah let down her guard and believe that God would be gentle with her dream to hold a child of her own? Sarah's laughter did not express true joy. Sarah's laughter was a brave attempt to cover the brokenness underneath. Have you laughed like that at some point in your life? The Lord, the Lord hears it. Now, that's Sarah. Notice Sarah hiding behind the tent door. But secondly, I want you to notice the Lord's attention to Sarah. As I already mentioned, this conversation is probably only taking place days after the conversation with Abraham in chapter 17. So the Lord didn't need to reiterate the news. Why did he come? Why did he bring up the promise again? Just, just days, maybe a week after he talked to Abraham the last time. It's because of Sarah. He came and he said, Abraham, where's Sarah? Where's Sarah? I want Sarah to know that the promise is still for her. It's still for her. After everything, after Hagar, after Ishmael. And then the Lord, it, it, when you're reading this in the text, sometimes this sounds a little odd, this whole, this whole account of the laugh. It seems like, Lord, what are you after? You know, okay, yes, Sarah laughed. You know, you're right. Do you just need to be proved right? Why do you make it an issue of Sarah's laugh? Why do you say, no, you did laugh? And Sarah's like, no, I didn't. And he's like, yes, you did. Um, why are you making an issue of that? The Lord wants Sarah to know that he, he heard the laugh. He fully understood what was behind that laugh. And he had a plan for changing that laugh for healing the brokenness of that laugh, for showing Sarah that his promise of a child, despite her failure, despite her pain, despite her shame, and despite her lie, this woman lied to God's face. The Lord hates lying. Despite her lie, the promise was still for her. How can that be? God is a holy God. These are not small sins. These are not trifling sins. Sarah has trashed her family and lied to God. How can the promise still be for Sarah? That's the question for us. How can the promise still be for us? And that brings us to our final point, God's remarkable grace. In Genesis 21, God keeps his promise to Sarah. Look at Genesis 21. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abram a son in his old age. Now skip down to verse 6. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? 
Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Note the attention that the text gives to Sarah from start to finish. This first story is about Sarah, and it's about Sarah's laughter. She gives birth to a baby boy, but note, what does the boy think? What does the boy represent to Sarah? The boy represents confirmation that against all odds, God still has tender love and care for her. After everything that has happened, that boy, Isaac, represents gentle, gracious love to a hurting and broken woman. But now what about us? How do we experience Sarah's joy? See, her laughter was changed from this broken, sarcastic, hurting laughter into full-hearted joy. But what about you and me? You know, none of us are expecting a baby boy named Isaac to be born sometime in the next few months. How do we experience that joy in 2023? How do we enter a new year and plan and prepare without falling into the trap that Sarah fell into? Remember, Sarah had a plan too. When things weren't going the way Sarah wanted, she wanted to change something. She said, okay, I'll do it my way. I've got an idea. I have a maidservant. Let's send her in. Let's have her be Abraham's wife. She had a plan, and it went way wrong. How do we, how do we avoid that trap as we start making plans for this new year? How do we connect the dots between God's promise to Sarah and his promise to us? Well, the Apostle Paul brings Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael and Abraham home to us in a very interesting way in Galatians chapter 4. And just as an aside, after this sermon, if you've got a little free time in the first week of your new year, uh, Paul's argument in Galatians is almost entirely based on this account. It's based on Abraham and Sarah and what God is trying to teach us through Abraham and Sarah's lives. Okay, but in chapter 4 of Galatians, Paul uses Sarah and Hagar as key examples. Sarah and Hagar are meant to represent something. They're meant to represent two covenants. That is, two separate ways to try to get to God. All right, now Hagar, Galatians 4.24, tells us that Hagar represents the covenant of the law. The covenant of the law. Now, God's law is perfect and good, but it doesn't have any power to heal us. If you've tried for more than two minutes to obey God's law in your own strength, that you know that the law, though it's beautiful, though it's perfect, though it shows us how life ought to be, that you can't obey it on your own. Your own plans are nothing in the face of God's law. You will dash yourself to pieces on God's law trying to obey it apart from Christ. But Hagar represents every attempt to do just that. Hagar is Sarah's plan to get God's blessings apart from God's grace. Hagar represents all our efforts to earn God's love or keep God's law or improve ourselves in any way apart from God's grace. She represents all our striving, manipulating, fighting, and clawing to get the things we want in this world, not realizing that none of those things can fully satisfy us apart from Christ. Friends, we have to preach this to ourselves every day, but I think especially as we begin a new year, we simply cannot get the blessings of God apart from God's grace. Let that sink in as you start to make plans, as you start to strategize for your new year. You cannot accomplish anything of lasting value this year or any year 
apart from God's gracious love expressed to you in Christ Jesus. Now, Sarah incredibly represents the covenant of grace. Of grace! This is how the New Testament remembers Sarah. This Sarah. The Sarah who said, Hagar, why don't you marry my husband? The Sarah who lied to God's face. The New Testament holds her up as an example of God's grace. Now, how does that grace come to us? John chapter 1, verses 14 and 17 has this to say. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. About 2,000 years after Isaac was born, there was another miracle birth. And this time it was even more astounding. Instead of a boy born to a woman who was barren, this boy was born to a virgin named Mary. And friends, God chose to bring our Savior into the world through a barren woman and a virgin for a reason. So that all of us could be sitting here this morning remembering that all of our efforts, apart from the grace of God in Christ, amount to nothing. That you do not bring anything to the table in your salvation. That our salvation is by grace alone. (laughs) And so as you come to this new year, I have a, a couple of groups of people in mind. Maybe you have never bowed before this Savior. And the good news for you this morning, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, the good news for you is you don't have to clean yourself up before you come to him. Because his salvation was always designed to be a gift of his grace. Now, you may have been walking with him for decades. How do you continue walking in him this new year? You continue walking in him the same way you first came to him. By grace, through faith. Ishmael would never have done It's not because God had something against Hagar and Ishmael. No, we heard God blessed them, okay? But Ishmael wouldn't have done because Ishmael would have sent the wrong message. The message of Ishmael would have been, hey, humans, you need to make a crafty plan in order to achieve your salvation. But that's not the way. It's through God's grace alone. The worship team can come on up. I have two groups of people in mind as we conclude the message today. First, I have all of you grumpy people who couldn't wait for the Christmas season to be over so that you could get back to your planning, so that you could make a plan for the new year and make your resolutions and fill up your calendar and sit down with your planner and a cup of coffee and fill up every page. Okay, those of you who have high hopes for this year and are ready to tackle your list, Uh, Those of you who are confident that you'll be able to eat healthier, exercise more, kick those bad habits. Here's the warning from Sarah and Isaac. Your plans cannot succeed apart from Jesus Christ. You may, you may accomplish something that you set out to accomplish, but apart from Christ, you will only accomplish it to, to, to realize that there are unintended consequences, to realize that it couldn't fully satisfy you, that it didn't meet your needs the way you thought it would, that accomplishing that thing, changing that habit, earning this accolade at work, it it won't go all the way down 
in your soul apart from Jesus Christ. It is absolutely not wrong to set your goals, to make your plans. We must do this. We must do this. But there's a subtle danger that we'll do it all in our own strength and for our own ends. And so how do we bring the the warning and the hope of Sarah and Isaac into, into our lives for the new year? Our plans have got to start by being submitted to the Lord. They've got to start with a humble admission that I can accomplish nothing of lasting value in myself, in my work, at my church, apart from God's grace in Christ Jesus. So what do we do? Practically speaking, what do you do, you you planners in the room? You start by submitting your plans to the Lord. Folks, Jesus told us how things get done in the Christian life. They don't get done by packing up the gospel along with your Christmas boxes and putting it in the attic for another year. They get done by by meditating on the goodness that Christmas speaks to us, by by sitting with Jesus in his grace, by going to him again and again, by starting every day and every year in Christ. Everything you accomplish is in and with and through him. Jesus said it. He said, I am the vine and you are the branches. You will only bear fruit if you abide in me. So I invite you, start your plans abiding abiding in Christ. The fuel, the nutrients you need to get real things done this year, it, it starts with your Bible and prayer. We, we always talk about Bible reading prayers, though it's just magic. It's not magic. This is, this is how we abide with our Savior. We pray. Submit your plans to the Lord. Are they God-honoring plans? Orient yourself toward his promise and ask yourself this question. Are my plans consistent with faith in his promises that have been spoken over me? Or are my f- plans feeble attempts to make up for my doubt that God will do what he said he would do for me? A- am I strategizing because I don't think God will come through? You see, you see the difference? And then ask for his help. This is my plan, Lord. It won't succeed apart from you. And second, to the weary ones among us who perhaps have little hope for 2023. Maybe you're done with resolutions and we're only, you know, 10 hours in to the new year. I wonder if some of you are hiding behind that curtain with Sarah. Maybe you're like me in fourth grade standing in the hallway and you're just all too aware of how you have failed. You're filled with shame, guilt, disillusionment from broken plans and dreams. Maybe you made sinful decisions and that the consequences of those decisions are still with you. Like Ishmael reminding you every day of how far short you've fallen. Maybe you have an addiction or a sinful habit that you're ashamed of and you're hiding. You're doing everything you can to hide. And as you hear this message about God's promise and God's grace, you just shake your head and you laugh to yourself. But it's that wrong kind of laugh. It's that laugh that expresses brokenness more than joy. Friends, if that's you this morning, I want you to know that it's Jesus himself who's standing outside the tent. He's heard that laugh before, and he knows the pain of it. He knows every failure, he knows every hurt, he knows every sin, and yet still he loves you deeply. I hope that you can hear him this morning. He's saying, my dear child, the promise is still for you. I paid the terrible cost with my own blood, and so there's no reason to hide anymore. Come out. Come out. 
and I will fill you with more joy and laughter than you can possibly imagine. Let's pray. Father, would you work this miracle in our hearts again this morning, or maybe even for the first time, that we become aware of your love, your grace for us, and our happy, joyful dependence on you to accomplish even one thing in our lives this year. Lord, I pray that you would make this a reality for us. In Jesus' name, amen.